0: The next speaker, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Michael Um, Prinsloo. Michael works at Alexander Forbes. He has worked in both the actuarial as well as the consulting uh, areas of Alexander Forbes. He's currently the head of best practice uh, in Alexander Forbes' research and development business division. He's responsible for developing and aligning the best practice advice and consulting tools to support corporate, institutional, as well as individual client strategies. He has in excess of 15 years' worth of experience in the pension funds industry, and today he will be talking to us um, on the, the various approaches, or the various funding vehicles available to members in terms of saving for retirement, um, focusing on the differences between umbrella funds or the use of umbrella funds, group RAs, as well as privately administered arrangements. Michael, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, can okay, we move with that presentation. <laughs> there you go. Uh, right. Okay, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for, for having me here. Yeah? It's a real privilege and a pleasure. I haven't been to one of the Actuarial Society meetings in quite some time, so I'm sorry to say. Um, okay, so fun types does it really matter? There's been a lot of talk uh, in the press and elsewhere about what type of vehicle is going to be the right vehicle for retirement funding purposes into the future. And obviously we've had a number of different options open to us over the years. I'm gonna take a quick look at some of that and also have a look at what the sort of state of the play, state of play in the industry is as well. And then perhaps just sketch briefly um, a framework for the way we should perhaps be thinking about this and so really posing more questions than than answers I mean the brains trust of the South African pensions industry sits within this room Um, and so we'll be responsible for solving this problem so my job is merely to state the problem yours is actually to solve it Um, and I think what's uh, this was initially envisaged as a panel discussion because if I'm if I'm right so I'm going to whiz through it and then uh, invite John up to join me if that's okay, and then we'll open it up to some questions and maybe make it a bit uh, interactive. So, the South African situation comes as no surprise to any of you. Uh, 75 to 80% of funds are defined contributions, so that won't be a big surprise. Somewhere between 10 and 13% uh, pure DB funds, and then a couple, a couple of bits and pieces in between. But what's important is within the DC space. So our focus is going to be really on the DC space, and that was the purpose of, of the presentation. There's been significant growth in umbrella funds versus other fund types, and I'll show you some of the numbers uh, in, in a little while. Um, there are now more members in umbrella funds type A, which is the commercial uh, you know, special rule type umbrella funds, than in standalone DC funds. So for the first time ever, we've got to this position. There's been a decline in the overall number of standalone funds, uh, I think no surprise there and that shouldn't be as news to any of you, um, and also interestingly there's been an increase in the number of freestanding hybrid funds, which is as a result of DB funds uh, closing down or at least converting slowly towards the fine contribution, and perhaps as uh, a function of some of the discussion we've just had for the last uh, half and a half. Um, okay, so the number of funds, overall reduction, about a 10% decrease in standalone funds. These numbers, the light blue Is it light blue on yours? Yes, it is. The light blue chart is the July 2015 numbers. The dark blue is the October 2013. Uh, Ordinary ordinary contribution stands for the DC funds. That's on the far left-hand side. And umbrella type A and B is on the far right-hand side. And you can see uh, a big decrease in the number of funds. So remember, this is the number of funds. But not a big increase, really, in the number of Uh, funds on the umbrella fund side. So it's been conversions into existing umbrella funds. On the asset side, though, it's a very, very different picture. Um, These all come from the FSB's uh, fund fund list off the website. So you can see that assets in standalone DC funds, the far left-hand side, increased marginally, really as a function of of returns. We know that the industry is largely, unfortunately, for the last number of years, um, been contribution negative. So in fact, more money flows out every year than flows in, um, but I think that's now slowly turning around. So I think we're at the position now where we'll be contribution positive into the future. But assets have grown significantly. So a uh, uh, sort of 50% plus, 54% increase in the assets of umbrella funds over the last October 2013 to July 2015. So this is not a long period of time for a pretty big increase in umbrella fund assets. We know what some of the drivers behind that uh, were, and I'll, t- I'll touch on those just <coughs> now. But similarly with membership. Um, Umbrella fund type A, uh, also some of it's been converted into umbrella fund type B as a result of increased focus on multiple employers and associate companies within one employer group, essentially. So some of those practices are also driving some of the classification of funds. So let's get down to the nuts and bolts. What we've been looking at in the past is the sort of traditional retirement funding uh, options that are av- available to us, and I'm really just focusing on DC here. So We've got Occupational DC, which is a compulsory offering, and I think that's a key point, and I'm going to come back to it a little bit just, just now. Um, the notion of compulsory is really an important notion when we start putting alternative options on the table. Either standalone as a single employer group, umbrella type A uh, or umbrella type B, and these can either be pension or provident, and so this is pretty much how it breaks down, and these are the funding mechanisms that we've used. You'll see in the little block on the right, death benefits can either be approved or unapproved and that also won't be news to you. Um, But that's quite an important consideration for what we'll be talking about. On the individual side and the voluntary side, we've always had a couple of different options open to us. We've had the retirement annuities, and that was aimed largely at self-employed, but latterly has been used as a top-up on on tax incentives. of your non-retirement funding income, 15% of that allocated to a retirement annuity. Also it was a pretty useful way to sidestep estate duty as people have realized and is now being closed out. Um, but how big is the retirement annuity market? All those numbers I showed you earlier excluded the RA funds. So the retirement annuity funds are large. If you look at the FSB's top 100 fund list in their annual report every year, you'll see that uh, the RA funds... Out of the five or top six or five or six uh, spots, they would occupy, say, four out of the top six on each of those lists. 62 active funds that I looked at on the fund list, over four million records, 420 billion rand worth of assets. So you can see it's it's a pretty well developed market. But, and this is the debate for today. There's no separate records of group RAs, and we're in the retirement funding business here, and the retirement funding business largely located through an employer locus, and that's what we're talking about. This is different to, say, the the, the pure retail market, and it's quite hard to work out exactly what sits in the group RA market. We know that there's relatively small numbers of employees who are in there, and relatively small numbers of records, because the employers that have typically taken up those offerings are really the very small employers, five, ten-man schemes. Suspected that there's less than 3 billion rand sitting in what is purely defined as a group RA. Uh, compare that to the 420 billion above. It's been largely a retail market to date. But, and it's a, it's a fairly big but, but due to the following things, and I'm going to go through a couple of these, and I'm going through this quite quickly, so please do stop me if there's any, any questions. Um, but due to retirement reform, we've seen uh, a day, well, we saw the Taxation Laws Amendment uh, Bill for 2015 come out a couple of weeks ago. didn't say anything about 1 March 2016. I don't know if that means a yes or a no yet. I uh, don't know if David or somebody else is here and maybe they can uh, tell us. Um, but it looks like it's going ahead. At the moment, as it stands, T Day goes ahead from 1 March next year. And that really levels up the playing field between pension provident and retirement annuities. Historically, that's been one of the impediments to, to RAs. So, <clears throat> That's one issue. The other issue is costs. This is again from the FSB's annual report, um, so some of you may be familiar with this, but this is what's driving a lot of the thinking around why changes are required and why some of the retirement reforms that have been proposed are actually being proposed. So if you just look at kind of the the section that I've highlighted there, funds with less than 20 or less than 50 members, um, somewhere between 25 and 54 percent of their contributions are eaten up by costs. Now, clearly, that's not a sustainable um, solution, whereas at the bottom level, funds in excess of 10,000 members, only 8% of the contributions are eaten up in costs, and only, um, you know, in terms of the income that's generated, only, only less than 3%, and clearly, that's a sustainable, a sustainable situation. The challenge that we have, I guess, is that we can't ignore the fact that around half of our employers in South Africa only have 50 employees or less. So we can focus on big funds and we can focus on uh, cost ratios for you know, the 1,000-man schemes and the 5,000-man schemes, but we're ignoring half the employers in South Africa, and that's, uh, and that's a really big challenge for us. The other issue is that uh, the economic environment uh, isn't great. Um, you read, pick up the newspaper any day, you can read about uh, proposed retrenchments. I mean, The mining industry is front and center at the moment, but it's not limited to mining. Um, so we know that it's really tough. But other than that, employers are also sort of throwing up their hands and saying, I don't really have the time or the resources to devote to running running funds. I certainly don't have this as a core business, uh, and you're making it harder and harder for me. And so really, I'm not that interested. There's increasing regulatory and compliance burden. Uh, TCF is around the corner. We've spoken a little bit about it today. And it is pretty groundbreaking in the sense that it really does get down to, even in the occupational space, the individual member, and we're all going to have to, I think John and Dwayne perhaps mentioned it this morning, uh, and it's come through in a couple of other presentations as well. Uh, there, were, there were references to Regulation 28 in, in, in Sean's presentation, but the reality is TCF is going to require us to be thinking about that individual member level, but it's, it is a, it's a harder job for trustees, um, and, and we're going to be looking at it again in the default regulations as well. Financial Services Law's General Amendment Act extended personal liability to employers, criminal liability uh, for non-payments of contributions. It's clear that there's a higher and higher governance budget associated to actually running certainly a standalone fund, um, and arguably even to an umbrella fund, and I'll talk about that in in a minute. Um, Poppy is, uh, I think most of you would have seen, uh, there was an announcement last week, it looks like Poppy will be effective probably before the end of next year and so we are all going to have to, I'm sure your businesses are already looking at all your processes and systems, as are we, but it's going to be a pretty big job and trustees unfortunately are pretty ill-prepared, so the discussions I've had with trustees, they certainly don't, they're not capable of dealing with things like poppy as a a fund entity, as a legal entity. They're going to require help and that's where uh, service providers are going to have to step in and it's going to be pretty onerous. is out there, um, and retirement reform, the new default regulations have been mentioned a few times today. Due to service provider positioning, and this is an interesting one, we've seen the closure of standalone administration services, forcing the umbrella fund discussion and conversions into those umbrella funds, um, and that was driving some of those numbers you saw earlier. Increasing flexibility and complexity of umbrella funds, so, the umbrella funds, with the, with the increased conversions from standalone funds to umbrella funds, we've seen more and more options being put on the table. Of late, that's maybe slowed down or slightly reversed, but over the last five years, certainly there are far more bespoke solutions available to employers in umbrella funds than there ever were before. It was pretty much one size fits all ten years ago, whereas now it really is a case of we want you in the umbrella fund, um, how, can, how can we get you there and what can we do to, to get you there? Asset managers positioning to combat the rise of umbrella funds. With the move to umbrella funds, uh, in-house asset managers within the insurance companies and elsewhere already have gained a share of the assets. Uh, the pensions market is big in South Africa, uh, you know, f- a good few trillion rand, um, and asset managers who do purely asset management on a sort of segregated basis could stand to lose uh, significantly if all the funds convert into umbrella funds and everything goes in-house. The marketing and media, obviously there's been quite a lot of discussions in the press, which is I guess what prompted some of, this, uh, some of this discussion today around the merits of umbrella funds and the demerits of umbrella funds. And also the expression by National Treasury that really they would prefer to see more employers in multi-employer funds, but that they don't really like the multi-employer funds that are out there at the moment and that the governance structures perhaps aren't, uh, aren't what they would really like to see. So those are some of the, some of the issues. So we've seen the rise of a new debate, and this is really the focus of, of this discussion. The group retirement annuity, and is it a viable solution? If so, who, when, and for whom? And, and so this now stands alongside, rather than being on a new slide as an individual solution, it stands on the same slide as a group solution. So I there's something that can be taken to employers. And I've sort of added in brackets there, compulsory or voluntary, and that that is not something to be undertaken trivially. Typically, a group retirement annuity, uh, in the absence of anything else, a retirement annuity is a voluntary situation, and so individual members would sign up to that. The challenge, of course, there is that we have uh, a challenge with pensions coverage anyway, and allowing members to opt out of pensions coverage is arguably not uh, what we're after. There is a thought process that making this a condition of employment in your contract with the employee, so part of the employer-employee relationship, membership of the group RA becomes compulsory, you force the compulsion into the scheme. I mean, it remains to be seen whether that is in fact workable, and certainly whether it's workable in all industries. I think in certain industries there will be, there'll be some pushback, but this is on the table nevertheless as, a, as an alternative solution to umbrella funds. And The discussion is really centered around the small employer market. Uh, where umbrella funds, uh, even at the low end, seem to be pretty prohibitive in terms of the costs and, and charges, and certainly on the face of it, and initially, RA seemed to offer, um, offer some value. So what is this thing, a group RA? Well, other than a single point for administration, potentially, in terms of the collection of contributions, uh, perhaps a negotiation on fees, and the bundling of some communication, uh, really it is a collection of some of the parts. So it really is a collection of individual RAs. Uh, There is no legal entity that is a group RA. It doesn't exist. There is an RA fund. Individual members sign up to that. It's the way that it's bundled and packaged by a service provider that determines whether it's a group RA. There's no legal structure. On the side, you'll see that the risk benefits are unapproved and will be paid direct. And this this issue of unapproved versus approved risk benefits, I mean, this is not a presentation on approved or unapproved risk benefits, but just suffice to say that it's not a trivial discussion. Depending on where you sit in terms of your salary spectrum and demographics of the fund, in terms of your benefit levels, certain members will be better off with approved and others will be better off with unapproved, so depending on where they sit. And you may have both those sets of members in your fund, depending on what your particular structure is. And so it's not a trivial discussion of just saying, we sign up to the group RA, um, and we'll just do everything as unapproved in terms of death benefits. And these are are some charts from uh, some old National Treasury papers, but the principle is there. This discussion of Section 37 c versus allocating benefits purely by nomination of beneficiary form, often that's also not trivial, and it may not be trivial for the people's lives that it actually touches. Uh, we might not think about it too much uh, as on the other end of the fence, but the person who's receiving the money, or should be receiving the money, uh, they definitely are thinking about it. So let's have a look at a couple of the differences between between these funds. All of them are tax incentivized. Currently Uh, either as a pension or provident fund in terms of standalone and umbrella or as an RA for for group RAs. That's the 15% of non-retirement funding income that we all know and love. Uh, That, potentially, from 1 March 2016, will be changed to be harmonized between all of those. So the provider is chosen by, in a standalone fund obviously there's no provider, the umbrella fund and the group RA, they're both chosen by the employer. So the employer makes that decision. In terms of the protections that they offer... Protection from creditors. The protection from creditors is greater uh, in a uh, a standalone fund or an umbrella fund than it is in a group RA, Uh, and in terms of contributions, there's a much greater onus on trustees to actually chase down the contributions in those funds. Uh, Within the group RA, there really is no obligation to chase down the contributions because ultimately it's a member contribution. You're not chasing an employer. And so, if there's no contributions paid to the fund, it actually becomes the employee's job to go and take on their employer and sue their employer. Uh, obviously, you can put in, try and put in place some mechanisms to combat that, but not an ideal situation for members to find themselves in, particularly where there are errant, uh, er- errant employers. And we do see, even in our umbrella funds, that in certain industries, at certain, at certain scales or at certain ends of the industry, you find errant employers that really struggle to actually meet the cash flow requirements of paying contributions on a monthly basis. And so, uh, asking the employees to take that challenge on is going to be quite tricky in some places. Employee representation, uh, obviously, within funds, you know, as 50% member elected at least, um, within the umbrella fund space, there are trustees, some of them are independent, sometimes they are elected by the members, um, but really it's a panel put forward and there is some sort of voting that takes place. But typically there's a management committee in place that actually deals with the issues related to that particular employer. On the group RA side, there are no trustees per se. um, From an employee representation perspective, there are trustees obviously, um, but there's no MANCO either. So there's no employer group whatsoever. In terms of retirement benefits, the retirement benefit is as per pension or provident for standalone or umbrella funds, depending on what type of fund you've set up. But the group RA is obviously just a pension fund, uh, and that is, is a key differentiator. Where We've seen some of the discussions around compulsory annuitization of provident funds. Um, obviously, if that goes ahead, it does equalize that playing field as well. But whilst that remains in place, uh, the, the requirement to annuitize a part of the income, um, albeit we think that's probably... Uh, in many instances the right way to go, uh, uh, is going to deter certain employee groups from, from participating. In terms of the retirement date, the group RA doesn't have a specific retirement age. Whereas on the other side, you do have the contribution cease at a particular point in time. Uh, obviously, we've now seen the deferred retirees allowed, and so that allows the benefit to be paid out on election, which is, which is positive. In terms of withdrawals, this is the biggie. Um, yes, uh, umbrella funds and standalone funds, obviously, you can take withdrawals, but group RA, uh, no withdrawals, at least not in, uh, unless there's some certain circumstances. Risk benefits, and this is another important distinction between umbrella funds and group RAs. In terms of the umbrella fund, the risk benefits can be provided by the fund or the employer, so whether it's approved or unapproved, but the important point is that it can be limited on multiple providers. One of the criticisms of umbrella funds is that the pricing is quite opaque and com- complex to work out at times, and when services are bundled, and particularly risk services are bundled into it, it can become tricky to actually work out or at least compare um, various options. But not all umbrella funds operate that way, and many do allow for multiple providers. If, on the group RA side, it's all going to be unapproved, it's employer-owned, and obviously multiple providers, the employer can go to anyone they like. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, of course, is that the employer says, I'm not offering any risk benefits, and in fact, you can sort it out yourself, Mr. Member. And that's going to really be a challenge for certain members. Some members won't be able to access cover at all uh, through because of medical underwriting, or, particular issues that they might have, uh, and certainly many won't be able to access it at the type of costs that they would be able to access it in the group scheme. So, uh, although it can be solved, in the absence of that fund, there's no trustees who are looking after the best interests of a particular member. The employer doesn't have that obligation as such to actually put in place those particular protections for those individuals. Um, in terms of costs, we would find typically wholesale costs in standalone funds, Uh, umbrella funds also wholesale cost, and on the group RA side, often typically retail costs, um, particularly in terms of investment fees. Investment choice, I'm not going to deal with any of that. I think the the one important point I'd like to stress on this particular slide are the contribution limits. So something not to be ignored when you're comparing a retirement annuity fund or a group RA with an umbrella fund is that in an umbrella fund, for example, there's no contribution limits, either on the upside or the downside. Um, Yes, there are tax limits, but there's no limit to the actual rand value of the contributions. Whereas, often in the Group RA side or on the RA side, there are minimum contribution levels. Maybe 250 rand, maybe 500 rand, maybe 300 rand. But the reality is that's going to be proved pretty onerous for some of your lower paid employees. Um, You can continue post-resignation in the RA fund, so that's an advantage. Uh, Proponents of the Group RA funds would argue that Uh, the forced preservation and the fact that you can continue post your resignation from a particular employer are two very strong plus points for for the Group RA solutions. Um, Obviously it it comes with uh, the the coverage issues that I discussed earlier and the voluntary nature of it. So these are the pros and cons. I'm going to just cover them briefly because I think I've covered a lot of these already. And there's two, or there's actually multiple ways of looking at this. So the one is from the member's view, um, the other one is from the employer's view, and obviously stakeholders such as service providers have their own views as well, which I'm not going to cover today, but I guess on, depending on what type of service provider you represent, you'd have different views. So from the, from the member's perspective, um, obviously there's, there's the advantages of a group RA is there's no need for uh, a Manco and trustees. Um, participation, in fact that probably should be on the other side, my mistake. Participation may not be compulsory, so that could be an advantage to the employee in their view. Not necessarily for their best interests, okay, but in terms of they may, they may be quite keen on opting out. Um, the employee can continue saving off their employment, so that's, that is useful. Same tax treatment, obviously from 1 March 2016. No fixed NRA, so that is also, again, quite useful. And forced preservation. Um, often, so that's a forced preservation that sits on both the positive and the negative side for relatively uh, obvious points. There's no access to cash so that's going to discourage some people, but the forced preservation, just through apathy if nothing else, should actually engender greater retirement savings and, and better retirement outcomes. Um, one of the issues with uh, RA funds is that it's not really portable, it's portable between RA funds, um, that they have li- very limited influence over the actual group retirement duty, what it can provide, the benefit structures, the, the, it's pretty much a service provider dominated. Although some may design bespoke solutions for particular employers, you still have very limited uh, I- oversight of it or uh, control. Um, you still need to make a lot of choices. I think the two biggest disadvantages potentially of the Group RA solution is that it requires significant admin and potentially engagement from members. Uh, again, that could be a positive. We've all been crying for many years for people to become more engaged with their pension savings and we've thrown up our hands and lamented why people don't take it, take it seriously or you, know, you send out option forms and you're lucky if you get 10% back. Um, but the reality is that if, they, if you are only going to get the 10% back, it's going to be pretty onerous on you as a provider or as, a, as an employer to actually manage the particular group RA. And also, they're going to need to make choices in terms of investment strategies. And yes, there can be defaults, um, but ultimately, they, there's always going to have to be some sort of choice made, and, and that's a real challenge. So from the employer perspective, this is where the need for the Manco trustees, thats where it should be. Um, obviously, it takes away time from... Uh, from their employees and they can focus on core business. Uh, Less resources spent on employee benefits, less admin when the employee leaves. They don't actually need to do anything other than stop deducting the contributions. There's no real claim form. The member can continue it in their personal capacity, um, can do whatever they like with it. So it doesn't become an employer or HR responsibility anymore. Um, But on on the disadvantages side, it's pretty much the same things. A couple of extra points to note. I've spoken about the minimum contributions. uh, The other one is that the participation participation is not compulsory. That's not just about broadening the net. There's also an element of cross-subsidy, both in terms of risk benefits and in terms of the costs of picking up these schemes. If it's priced individually or on a retail basis, um, certainly you lose some of the cross-subsidies that are inherent in umbrella funds and certainly in standalone funds as well. And so that's a problem. The other thing is that because it's a contract between the employee and the provider. In fact, there's no employer relationship there at all. Um, you, need a, a, you need literally an application form from every, every employee. Uh, if you've got 500 employees, it's gonna be challenging to get the 500 application forms in. Uh, obviously with five or 10 people, it becomes a little bit easier. So the big question, which one's better? It's clear. And this is a question to you guys, so I'm not going to answer it. Um, But it's clear that the current numbers, so those numbers I showed you earlier, very small assets in group RA schemes, huge assets in umbrella funds, but they only tell half the story. Those numbers are just a function of what's been happening in the market over the last few years. They're They're not an answer in terms of what's best for the future. Those are merely a function of what's actually transpired in the market. Um, In fact, there's no real clear definition of what's better. And there's quite a lot of noise in in the press and, and elsewhere about this particular issue. So our suggestion, or my suggestion, is that we go back to basics and the basics of benefit design. And it's often been, I think it gets overlooked a lot in the DC space. And the challenge there is that people such as yourselves Uh, have probably pulled back from DC funds in a large degree. We have a large number of valuation-exempt funds, valuators and and actuaries playing perhaps less and less of a role in DC funds, but really should perhaps be playing more of a role in terms of the benefit design. I know we do it in in R&D departments and things like that, but actually in terms of actual advice to employers, it's going to become critical. We need to be clear on what problem we're trying to solve, uh, and I think that uh, perhaps John and Dwayne did quite a good job of what that problem is that retirement income problem and the goal that we're actually trying, the objective function that we're trying to solve for. um, For who? It's for the individual. It's clear that it's for the individual. And what constraints do we have in terms of funding? And if we're going to get them to actually pay attention to this, it doesn't matter what type of fund we use, we're going to have to consider the member's interest throughout the full full journey, um, throughout the fund. Not just at a point in time, not just at retirement. Uh, We're going to have to think about their, their entire journey. So Our choices should help them with their outcome. This is just uh, uh, from, one of our, from one of our models, but the point is if we want to get them to that 75, don't worry about all the numbers in terms of what they actually mean, it's just, uh, it's just made up. But um, the, the point is if we're going to get them to what, where we want them to go to, all of our decisions, our fund choices, and I don't mean i mean what type of vehicle we use, what type of structures we put in place. Uh, there was a little discussion earlier about the contribution rates and the, the other levers that you can pull, because there is no magic. There's no magic investment strategy that's going to solve our pension, uh, our pension problem. Um, we have to get the other things right as well, and we have to find a way to have that conversation with, with the employers. And so we're going to have to change our conversation to truly understand the demographics of the funds that we're, that we're dealing with and the members underlying those funds at an individual level. And I guess there's also a little bit of a theme that's come through um, today. And consider the benefits of trade offs. We're very quick to uh, land based individuals who found themselves in debt and actually, if there's flexible contribution rates, they choose the lower contribution rate because they actually can't afford the higher one and we label them as financially unwell or, uh, you know, sick in the head or something like that. You know, we really, we really give them a bad rap, but we don't actually consider that the pressures that they might be under and the things that they would actually need to, to fund, it, that they're facing real-life trade-offs. And the more we can understand that, the more we can spend time on thinking about things like debt, and I know that's a, perhaps a foreign, a foreign concept to this, to this forum, but the, more, and the, the better we understand that side of the coin, the better we'll go on the saving side of the coin. Um, I think too long have the industries in terms of... some uh, at, the, at the heart of it is one individual. On the one hand, you've got debt and it's dealt with by a completely separate industry to the savings industry, and the two never shall they meet. And, and I think that's got to change. Um, and we need to think about where to engage, and I've already spoke about that. I think the employer is the place. So we agree. In conclusion, overall financial well-being is the aim. Um, an important component of this is being able to retire, to maintain your lifestyle as best as possible. And we can get into a lot of debates about replacement ratios and whether that's a good measure or a bad measure, and if so what what is it, we're not going to get into any of those. Um, The vehicle chosen should support the aim. So whatever aim you actually have chosen, the vehicle should support that. We can't ignore the employer, our decisions must be based on an assessment of whether it increases or decreases the likelihood and extent of the positive outcomes, both in aggregate uh, for the employer's purposes and at an individual level. And these are the issues as we see them to consider. This is the kind of the framework as I see it in terms of what to consider if you're looking at whether to go with an umbrella fund or a group RA or even a standalone fund for that matter. There needs to be some sort of overall cost and value assessment and this is quite tricky. Comparing these things isn't simple for those of you who've tried. Um, And what's more is you need to compare it both now and into the future under likely scenarios. So certainly um, at small asset sizes, Group RAs appear on the face of it to be significantly cheaper than a lot of the umbrella funds in that space. Uh, But as the asset sizes grow, even if the number of employees don't increase, but the average assets of those employees increase, in fact, the umbrella funds start becoming significantly cheaper on some of the analysis that we've seen. So it's not a simple case of at the present time, this one is cheaper and that one isn't. The administrative requirements we've spoken about, the employee demographics, um, financial sophistication, literacy and capability, uh, the tax issues, the preservation issues, whether you can combine these things with other products. Um, So tax-free savings accounts is obviously new on the block, and it provides a a fairly useful mechanism for access to cash uh, to counteract sort of forced preservation. That's the theory at least. That's great if it gets utilised in the right way, clearly it's open to significant abuse particularly if employers are actually paying in or co-contributing into those um, and investment choices. But all of them need to support the retirement outcome. So each employer weighs up to arrive at the... Pro- How am I doing? Okay, okay. it's the end. Um, horses for courses, I think that's the most the, the important thing. I don't think there is a single right solution for every single employer. I do think that we'll see group RAs um, gaining some more, more momentum um, probably quite rightly as they are fairly small at the moment. Having said that, that doesn't mean that people who are umbrella funds are, are in the incorrect places. I think what's important is if we use those assessment criteria earlier and we measure it relative to the objective, we'll be okay. And I guess importantly uh, ethical and well-considered professional advice, and I guess that's where all of you come in, will actually add greatly to that debate. Um, because it really is, it can be conflicted uh, pretty easily by which side of the fence you actually sit on. Whereas, ultimately, what we're trying to do is get South Africans to retire better. So that's it from me. John, I don't know if we can just open it to questions and and debate.
0: Thank you, Michael. we, we're running slightly over. It's not too significantly over. So we're going to spend about 15 minutes taking some questions. Um, I'm then going to ask that you uh, go out and have a comfort break if, if necessary. Um, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and then come back as quickly as possible for us to finish off the day. So if, if you don't mind, um, we've got the roaming mics uh, around. Any questions?
2: I think, Kosti, if you don't uh, mind, I think we've got a couple of questions we can just get oh, you. Uh, we can actually ask a couple
0: of the. All oh, right.
2: I think for those of you that are just need of uh, some exercise, uh, I think we've got five questions. So four. I think we can four. maybe facilitate the, the discussion with that. Okay. So maybe we can try the first question uh, Do you think a group RA is a viable alternative to an umbrella? And then you've got four options. Okay, I think the the vast majority um, agree that actually it is a viable option, Uh, but I think it's split between, um, you know, should always be considered or only for small employers. Um, What I find interesting is that, yeah, there's still 26% that don't feel it is a viable alternative. So I think, you know, it's quite worth a a discussion because I think at the end of the day, um, you know, some of the comments that come up are, a, umbrella funds themselves are not you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing, hence we've got a lot of legislation. The good thing is umbrellas these days are very different from what they were 10 years ago. A lot of great uh, protections in place. But I think my my personal opinion is that um, we shouldn't stifle innovation in the, the industry. You need to allow competition. You need to allow these things to evolve. But I think you need to learn. And I think it was I was discussing with Bruce, I think he made a good point um, uh, that when living annuities first came there were less regulations and protections around it, but it's actually become a really important building block for people in retirement. I think we need to now start building and recognising group RAs uh, because there's a blurring of lines between retail and institutional, it's going to continue. Uh, You need to start building those protections and aligning them from day one. So start recognizing it as an actual uh, legitimate option. Put some of the gaps in protection in place and let the market play out because I think it can only be good uh, you know, to encourage competition out there. But let's, let's have a look at um, maybe the next question. Mike, um, do you want to take that one? Yeah. Do
1: you think that employers will be able to convince employees that membership of an RA is an appropriate condition of employment. In other words, can we make group RAs compulsory?
2: It's a live commentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the conclusion is.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think pretty much, oh, we've got a few seconds left, unless this, I'm going to put my head on the block here and say that's pretty much what I would have expected. <laughs> So I do think it will be a challenge in some industries, and I would agree with that. I think there are certain industries that will just push back um, hugely on that. And certainly changing conditions of employment is not something that happens unilaterally in this country anyway. Um, it, it takes significant time and, and energy in terms of negotiation. So that, that simple point up there is anything but a simple point, I think.
2: But I think, I think Mike, the important thing is that you can choose. So part of your... Um, framework when employers need to consider these things is, should they make it a condition? If you make it a condition, everybody, and you retain the cross-subsidy within the scheme, and recognise that if you don't, what are the implications for individual members? I think in the absence of legislation, I think an awareness and just making sure that people are fully aware of the consequences
1: uh, is is the first step. Yeah, absolutely. I think having a useful framework to evaluate these things um, is also good.
2: We've got two more left, Costa, and then we can. uh, So let's look at the next uh, question. Yeah, they're not long. So, should there be regulations formalizing group RAs uh, in legislation and standing? And let's go.
1: no live scoring here, yeah. oh. <laughs> So
0: incidentally, guys, A is one, B is two, and C is three. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> that might explain the 2.5% you don't know what an umbrella fund is.
2: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, there's, um, I think obviously this is probably a topic for more discussion. We're interested at some of the legal um, uh, industry discussions. But, and Natasha, you want to comment? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just curious in
3: terms of administration of um, where the fund on an individual basis. So, I, mean, is that a, I mean, that's probably what we're kind of looking for under point A. So wanting a group of five employers that, you know, you don't need a fee, you don't need group reporting, but you still want that pension profit and fund structure. You know what I'm saying?
2: For small, small groups. So, so in other
3: words, you, you belong to an umbrella fund, it's a pension or problem fund. Yeah. But you, you don't get administered on a group basis, you get administered on an individual basis.
1: So sort of joint accounting joint, and well, single no, bank no. accounts and all that sort of thing, yeah, or...?
3: Yeah, joint bank accounts, but you don't want the reporting. you don't want the manco, you don't want the... But you want
1: the... But you want the protections of being within a pension the classes, fund rather than an RA. You know, and, you know,
3: you the, bulk, the bulk discounting on the,
1: the assets. I think the challenge of that is that although it, 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 that may well be one of the mechanisms that's needed in, to bring the umbrella fund cost down at that small employer level, and I'm, we're talking really small employers here, yeah? um, I think you're going it's, it's a fight against increased transparency and um, governance requirements that we've that we've seen come through, and, and, and quite rightly also. So I think you're going to. That's a balancing act. You know, the single bank account is a good example. Um, how is that thing accounted for and shown? What do you see? How do you know you're getting a fair deal? Those are those are real questions.
2: Okay. So last one. Um, and I think this is a quite will be quite a telling one. It's uh, what is your personal preference as a member for your your own savings. retirement savings. Um, one, two, three, or four, uh, which is none, which would be quite interesting. Sure. Yeah, I think still a vast, vast majority still saying, you know, the existing structures in terms of freestanding and umbrella uh, being better with group RAs sort of less. I think time will tell whether. It's and
1: there's a 13% of people with big, significant share options that don't uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that don't need a, a retirement fund. So
2: yeah, it'll be good to unpack that 13 at some point just to understand that. But I think the, the majority is. I think we're still in an industry that is evolving. Group RAs are still a small component of that, um, and, I, and I think time will tell whether you know that that industry uh, grows. But I think definitely, as Micah said, I think there's pros and cons of each. I think we shouldn't stifle uh, innovation. Rather, bring up the issues with the regulators and how we can build those protections uh, in place. But Costa, I don't know if you want to yeah. uh, you know, close off. I have one or two more questions. If uh, are, th-
0: are, there any, are there any more questions uh, for our panel? Yes. There's one question Sorry.
3: there. David? Uh, David Luckman, uh, mine's not so much a question but more comments, uh, is okay, the, the, the presentation's more being presented from the point of view of how do we have, as actuaries or consultants advise employers or members or clients in making their decisions, but I think there's a bigger discussion and that's a discussion, what do we as a country want to have, I don't think that discussion is... <laughs> Sufficiently up to now. There have been two previous major trends in the retirement fund industry. One was the fund benefit to the fund contribution, which I think was a good thing to, uh, personally, but I don't think that discussion actually happened. It got driven by the market. Then the second one was standalone <coughs> umbrella, which also I think was a good thing, but again, I don't think that discussion really happened at a country level. It really got driven by a market. Now this is the third. Group rights are just a subset of a retail model versus an institutional model. And again, in this whole reform debate, I don't think we as a country have had sufficient discussion Do we want ultimately an institutional model or a retail model. And there are, are pros and cons. Yeah. I, I think to me, the most important thing is you know, we shouldn't be, I mean, the FSB is still talking about should we have umbrella fund legislation? I mean, that was bolted 10 years ago. The, discussion, the important discussion today is do we want in the future to have an institutional model for so, so, yeah, the whole country, I think.
1: You know, something that we've raised in, in the benefits promise, which some of you may have seen um, and, and David agreeing with you is that pensions are part of social security, overall social security um, system, and in our country it's been largely privatized, but it isn't like that everywhere in the world, and we need to treat it as a a social security issue in terms of the overall country uh, if we're going to actually win in the end of the day. So I I would agree with that.
2: Yeah, and David, I I definitely agree, and it's unfortunate that that debate has unfortunately been delayed uh, further. We know that there will be some discussion uh, on Friday uh, at NEDLAC discussing some of the retirement reforms. It will be interesting to actually see what comes out of that, but I think it's probably likely that you know, the wider reforms, especially the issue of coverage, which is really the heart of what you're talking about, and coverage and how you're going to, to do that? be probably still uh, somewhere off,
1: is my sense, given well, where we are as a country. coverage and, so- and solidarity yeah, yeah. in terms of the, the cross-subsidies.
0: Guys, I'm going to break it at this point. Um, Michael, John, uh, thanks again. Michael, thanks very much for putting in the time and effort to come and talk to uh, uh, a very daunting uh, forum of of actuaries.
1: I just spoke long so they couldn't throw the thing (laughs) that was thrown at Kim.
0: We sincerely (laughs) appreciate your effort and, 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 and the presentation that you gave. Thanks very much.